Southern Skies. Online Media. And welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode number 38 of the program where we look at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. Steve Fisher back with you once again. I'm very excited and equally excited is Grant McCarran. How are you, mate? Oh, mate, I am so excited. This is great. Mate, our podcast has gone to a whole new level. We have managed to land an interview with a very important person in Australian aviation. Now, before we say who it is, I just want to let everyone know that we have been listening. A number of you have been saying a lot of our shows have been getting a bit too long at one and a half to two hours. Well, here's one that's not going to be that long. It's going to come in under one hour, but while it's a bit short, it carries a lot of great information. And the main reason it's short is because this person we spoke to is pretty hard to get any time with. So uh, this is the first and hopefully uh, two or three interviews we're going to have with this man. And uh, dude, should we just let it go? Oh no, we should do an intro, shouldn't we? When it comes to big names in the aviation industry in this part of the world, they really don't come much bigger than Dick Smith. Dick Smith is a self-made millionaire. He's a very outspoken advocate of Australian aviation, and he is what many people consider to be the father of uh, airspace reform in this country. Uh, Not afraid to go up against the establishment. This hasn't always made him popular in many circles, particularly in political circles, Uh, and some would say a very galvanising character. Uh, I, for one, though, will tell you that I've always been a fan of Dick Smith, and Grant, I can't tell you uh, what a privilege it was to speak to him this morning. You know, with all the hard work we've done on this podcast over the last 12 months or so, this this is what it's all about. Out, folks and uh, I'm just buzzing I'll tell you. Yeah for those who don't know uh, Dick Smith is uh, you might call him a serial entrepreneur he started Dick Smith Electronics a very successful nationwide uh, chain of electronics stores and while he's sold out of that he's moved on to be doing uh, his own food brands and a number of other ventures as well. Uh, he's also a pilot, he's flown around the world he's been a bit of an adventurer, he's pushed the boundaries he's, uh, he's really explored what you can do with uh, aircraft from below through to helicopters, uh, twin-engine turboprops, citation jets, you name it, he's got it. Uh, he's also been on the board of the uh, Civil Aviation Authority back in 88 and was the chairman in 1992. Uh, he was then on the board of CASA, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, back in 97, uh, was the chairman of that from 97 to 99. So he's been very influential in the top end of aviation in Australia as well. And we've been uh, chatting with him for a little while about coming on the show and talking to us uh, about his life in aviation, covering all aspects from his his time flying aircraft through to being the uh, involved with the aviation administration and uh, his current position on aviation reform. And uh, this is the first interview we've managed to get with him. Hopefully, we'll have another couple where we cover the uh, other aspects of being involved with the CAA and CASA and on aviation reform. But uh, this one is all about him learning to fly and his adventures flying around the world. Absolutely brilliant stuff, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. Absolutely. Folks, so let's get into it. It's our great pleasure to introduce Mr. Dick Smith. 
Mr. Dick Smith, thanks very much for your time and welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you. Dick, we've talked to a lot of people in this program about their path through aviation and uh, it seems a common theme that uh, their fascination stems from an early age. Would you say that's the case with yourself? Was it in the blood from an early age? Well, probably not really because it's fascinating. I never thought I'd ever be able to fly. I lived in a northern Sydney suburb of Roseville. I used to see the, uh, in those days, vampire jets fly over occasionally from Richmond. But it was completely beyond comprehension that I'd ever be able to fly. I came, my dad was a salesman, mum was a homemaker, and I was hopeless at school. And so it wasn't within my reckoning. But when I opened Dick Smith Electronics in about 1968, after a couple of years, I made some money, and, and so I thought, gee, this is, this is exciting. And in those days, you could learn to fly for about, I think it was about $25 per hour. And I used to go out very early in the morning, about 6 a.m. initially to Bankstown, then to Hoxton Park, and finally got my private pilot's license. So it was something that really didn't happen. And I'm just checking here, I think I was 28 years of age when I sort of started to fly. That's that's not not as late as some of us, but uh, yeah, a lot of people do start a little earlier than that. But it's uh, it's great to see because you you went on and got your your fixed wing, but you didn't just get fixed wing. You also went to twins, didn't you? Yes. Uh, look, I it was interesting. I'd started quickly a little bit about about my background. Um, I wasn't very good at school, as I mentioned, but I started a little business called Dick Smith Electronics with six hundred and ten dollars in August of nineteen sixty eight, and I never thought that would have more than three or four people working for it, but it did very well. I then moved into electronic components and very quickly it made lots of money. And so I ended up purchasing a twin Comanche. That was my first plane I ever owned. I was 31 years of age and I bought a twin Comanche, $42,000. It sounded an enormous amount of money. In those days, a really good home in Sydney sold for about (laughs) $30,000. And so I bought the twin Comanche, had to learn to fly it. Then I moved on to Barron's. But I never really liked fixed wing that much in the way that if you went flying around Australia, which I did, I love to go out back. If you saw something interesting below you, well, half the time you couldn't see it because there'd be a wing in the way. And then if there was something interesting, there was never an airport nearby where you could land or a runway or an airstrip. And one day I was stranded at Narandra in bad weather in my barren, and the weather was really bad, almost down to the ground. And a helicopter came in. It was a Bell Jet Ranger, and I, I heard it, and it came and landed. And so I walked across to it in the rain, and the pilot was the it was the Electricity Commission helicopter they used to monitor power lines. And the pilot was a person I got to know quite well called Chick Barron. And I said to him, oh, I said, is this helicopter instrument rated? And he said, no. He said, if you have a helicopter, he said, you just fly below, below the cloud. And if ever they get too low, you just land and have a cup of tea with somebody. <laughs> now, if you knew me, that's my type of flying. And so... I finally got airborne and got back to Sydney and rang up Bell Helicopters and within a few months I'd purchased my own Jet Ranger and learnt to fly it. So, so you went straight into flying the Jet Ranger. Did you did you progress through the like the Bell Forty Seven first? I actually did about twelve hours when I ordered the new Jet Ranger. It was going to take I think about three months. And by the way, in those days, a brand new Jet Ranger cost two hundred and twenty thousand US, which, yep. believe it or not, was one hundred and ninety thousand Australian. Yes. Good old in days. those <laughs> days, it was about a dollar twenty to the dollar. Quite amazing, different to being sort of eighty or ninety cents. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the I, I just I, I I couldn't wait to learn to fly, and so I did some initial learning in a Hiller and then in a Bell 47, and I got up to solo stage in the piston machine. Then I went up with my instructor, and uh, we uh, flew up by airline to to Brisbane, went to the Bell factory and got in the helicopter, and uh, off we flew with the helicopter with my instructor teaching me how to fly it. 
Wow, cool. Yep. Now, now you, you had quite a few adventures and flights in that helicopter, didn't you? Absolutely. Well, no, the first one initially, that was Mike in Deer Sierra, and I did fly it uh, from Australian mainland to Lord Howe Island. That was about yep. 300 nautical miles over water. I also flew it, did a non-stop flight from Sydney to Bundaberg. That was commemorating Bert Hinkler's non-stop yes. flight, 600 nautical miles, and that was to test the tank for my plan to fly around the world. And where the idea to come to fly around the world came from was quite interesting. When I had the twin Comanche and then moved on to a Baron, my plan was to buy a new aeroplane in the United States and fly it back over the Pacific, as most of the ferry flights do. Yep. When I moved on to helicopters, I thought I can't do that. But then I was looking at the map one day and I thought, look, I should be able to get across the Atlantic uh, by going via Greenland and Iceland. And if I put a big tank in the helicopter, and then I'd get it to London and then fly down through the Middle East to Australia. And when I was explaining that to someone, they said, oh, why don't you fly right around the world? And I remember thinking, wow, wouldn't that be exciting? Now, in those days, a helicopter was designed basically for news crews to fly across a town 10 or 15 minutes flying. No one thought they had de decent range. And so I was the person who thought, well, can you fly a helicopter long distance? At that stage, when I came up with my plan to fly solo around the world, no one had even thought that a helicopter could actually do that. Because a lot of people find themselves getting pretty tired in a helicopter very quickly, the, the yep. vibrations and the noise and so on. First of all, the jet range, if you've got it well balanced, it's quite smooth. And secondly, yep. if you're so frightened that you never get tired. I mean, I was flying 10,000 nautical miles over water with one engine, no floats. I couldn't <laughs> afford a twin engine machine and I couldn't put floats on because it would have been too heavy and not have the range. And so it was interesting that flight. One of the fascinating things about it was that it was the middle of the Cold War and the Iron Curtain existed. Young people won't oh, know yeah. what that is, but yeah. you have to look it up on Wikipedia. And uh, <laughs> you couldn't land in Russia. And all the original flights around the world by Wiley Post in fixed wing mm -hmm. all went via Russia. Now, I thought I'd, I'll, I'll get right around the world as far as taking off from Fort Worth where I took delivery of the helicopter across the Atlantic and then right down to Sydney and then from Sydney up to Japan. And then I thought, surely they'll give me approval just to do one landing in Siberia and then I'll refuel and then fly on to Alaska. But they wouldn't give me any approval at all. And so in the end, I put three drums of fuel on board a ship and the ship was going from Kashira on the northern... No, no, it was going from Yokohama in Japan to Seattle when it was about three and a half days out across the northern Pacific. I took off at 3 a.m. in pitch darkness from the very tip of Japan, flew seven hours to the ship, a bit over 600 nautical miles, refueled on the ship rolling around in the ocean and then took off and flew to the Aleutian chain, a little island called Shemya, which was a secret air force base, refueled there and then finally got up to Anchorage and then threw back to Fort Worth. How did you find the, the endurance? I mean, it's, it's obviously even... Even today, Dick, you wouldn't find people wanting to do such long trips in a helicopter probably of any description. How did you find the endurance of the Jet Ranger back then? Well, it was just wonderful. I mean, I love flying, and if anyone who's been lucky enough to fly a helicopter, it's, the, it's a magic carpet. It's the ultimate off-road vehicle. To think that this little machine could be made, I'm sitting at my home at Terry Hills, my Jet Ranger's underneath the bedroom. It just slides in a little platform, and uh, it's such an amazing machine. I've done the Canning Stock Route with it across Australia, around Australia, you all right throughout New Zealand. It's just the most wonderful little machine that you couldn't believe that someone could build. Something that can cruise at over 200 kilometres an hour, can take off from a, you know, a tiny little space and is incredibly reliable. I just love it. I've just spent two, a week, two weeks ago, I just spent a week camping out around Lake Eyre and Cooper's Creek just by myself and uh, 
it's just the ultimate off-road vehicle. Yeah, okay, and you're still using the Jet, the, the jet Ranger? Yeah, I have uh, the Jet Ranger that I flew around the world. Um, in fact, my original Mike Indiacera Jet Ranger is, I think it's operated by Channel 9 in Adelaide. It's been there ever since I sold it, but still flying well. And uh, then DI, the original Delta India Kilo that I flew around the world is in the Powerhouse Museum. If, if you go to the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney and catch the lift, you'll be looking at it. It's set up in exactly the condition it was when I flew around the world with the big tank inside and the sun compass and everything. And even it's got the uh, Solo Around the World attempt stickers on it. Uh, <laughs> but now I have a new Jet Ranger. Well, it's, it must be about 12 years old now, but it's only done 1,500 hours. It's also got the Regio DIK. I was able to transfer it. And it's what I use as my little... Uh, uh, roundabout town and going out adventuring around Australia. So is that a 206B or like a long ranger or is it the standard Jet Ranger model? It's the standard Jet Ranger but it's a Jet Ranger 3 and so okay. it's the very latest model. Uh, in fact, I've stopped making them now. I did have a long ranger but I sold that to John Singleton and it still flies in and out of here occasionally. It's a beautiful machine. Just uh, talking about helicopters, Dick, we've known, we've noticed lately uh, in the last probably, I don't know, five to ten years that the Robinson line of helicopters has become quite uh, prominent here. Uh, have you had a chance to operate any of them? Yes, I've flown in both an R22 and an R44. I'm not endorsed, but I've flown them and uh, wonderful helicopters. But look, nothing beats a Jet Ranger, I can tell you. <laughs> the Robinson's good, and Robinson are now, of course, designing the R66, which uh, mm-hmm. will have a turbine engine, and uh, the turbine engine's incredibly reliable. But friends of mine have now flown around the world in Robinson R44s, and they're still alive, so it shows you that uh, <laughs> even a piston, a piston engine can be pretty reliable. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've, I've enjoyed my flights in Jet Rangers, but my my favourite's always been the uh, the old Hughes 500, the MD 500. I've just always enjoyed the look and the the feel of that aircraft. Yes, it's a great machine for aerobatics and manoeuvrability. Not so good for passengers. So if you're taking your family, which I did when they were younger, and yep. friends and that, it's not as comfortable that way. Actually, you know, Dick, I, I've been in the aviation game for 20 years. I've never been in a helicopter ever. So. Ah, well, there you are. You haven't been a chopper. Well, one day, where, where do you live? We're uh, just south of Melbourne. Ah, well, one day when you come to Sydney, I'll take you for a fly. That would be wonderful. <laughs> that would be awesome. You can, you can go in the Jet Ranger, which is under the bedroom, or in the hangar in the front garden. I'm just looking at it. I've got an Augusta 109E power. Ah, that's the uh, that's the Italian helicopter, yeah. and it's a beautiful machine. It, I think it's pretty well the fastest civilian machine around. 155 knots it cruises. It's got an unbelievable 500 nautical mile range just with standard tanks. Wow. So if I wanted to, I can fly here to Melbourne, front lawn here to Melbourne, or out to Lord Howe Island, or indeed probably just about get directly, I think, to Broken Hill. You could come and land it right in my court, Dick. I'm sure nobody would mind. <laughs> ah, well, there you are. <laughs> well, that, that, no, actually, I, that actually leads me to a question I was going to ask you. We were listening to uh, one of the other podcasts that we're involved in over in the United States recently, and uh, they had a, uh, a pilot on there who's a uh, police pilot, and he flies one of the, I think it's a Eurocopter of some description. Yes. One thing I didn't know, and it quite surprised me to learn, I'd heard this about Russian helicopters, but apparently the rotors spin the other way in the uh, European helicopters. Is that true? Absolutely, and that's why, uh, you know, people say, why don't you have a jet ranger and a squirrel and I said well to have two helicopters and each with the rotor going a different way would even be would be pretty hard for me and uh, I'm endorsed on the squirrel and I must tell you this story friends of mine in Alaska era helicopters used to loan me normally a jet ranger and I'd head off down the Alaskan peninsula or up around the Brooks range and one day I got there and they said oh look we only we only have the squirrel and I said okay well I'll take the squirrel and for some reason I was able to put the correct foot forward see it's the opposite when you put the collective down yep. if you've got a rotor going the other way you've got to put the wrong foot forward and I'd done it beautifully for about five or six days camping down the Alaska 
Alaskan Peninsula. But as I got back to the Anchorage International Airport, you cross the centre of the field to land at what they call the South uh, Apron, South Air Park, where the helicopters operate from. And so he gave me a clearance across the runway at about 200 feet. And as I got just in front of the tower at 200 feet, I pushed the collective down and pushed the wrong foot forward. Oops. And that meant that not only was I not correcting, but I was double <laughs> disconnecting. <laughs> and the helicopter at about 100 knots went sideways. I couldn't believe a helicopter could fly sideways at 100 knots, but the squirrel did. And uh, it looked quite spectacular for the tower. <laughs> The, tower, the, the uh, controller said, gee, we've never seen that before. <laughs> and I very quickly corrected it. But it just shows you it's a bit like if you hire a car overseas and you're resolutely driving on the right-hand side of the road, but then if you stop somewhere out in the country and get up in the morning, you can end up driving on the wrong side of the road initially because yep. your mind goes back to what it's been trained to do. And that's what had happened on this particular flight. But yes, look, the, squ- the Squirrel's a great machine, very very good passenger-friendly because you're all in one big cockpit together. Yep. But I love the Jet Ranger for reliability. Australians, older Australians listening to this will know what an E.H. Holden is. That was a 1964 yes. Holden built by GM. The most reliable, simple car ever built. And my, I say that my Jet Ranger is the E.H. Holden of helicopters. It's very <laughs> simple, very reliable, no electronics to think of, and it's just the most wonderful machine. I've been floating around on the ice pack near the North Pole in a Jet Ranger. I've been sitting on mountain tops in Antarctica. They've always started and always gone, and I'm still alive. Yeah, I've had an FJ and an EK and an HD. So, yeah, those old reliables, they're good. (laughs) Now, you've mentioned about the pole with helicopters and, and you've also done the pole in a twin otter, haven't you? What happened was after flying solo around the world in the helicopter, I then thought I'll fly to the North Pole. And that took about three years because I just couldn't get over how cold it was. And uh, <laughs> no one had ever been to the North Pole. It was before GPS, so it's hard to find out where the North Pole was. Yep. But I eventually got there and, and my plan was to fly pole to pole. But I found it was so damn dangerous flying in those conditions that I thought, look, I want to preserve my life. And to get fuel out on the Arctic ice so I could get to the North Pole, which I eventually got there, uh, I used a twin otter and I thought gee that'd be a lot safer aeroplane to fly pole to pole and it's interesting by the way because some friends of mine actually decided to fly pole to pole and one of them a Q we call him Quentin Smith he was flying pole to pole and his Robinson we, uh, they had some problem in Drake Passage and they actually came down in Drake Passage lost the helicopter but managed to get into their life raft and live and then my friend Jennifer Murray who's has flown solo around the world in a Robinson R44 she decided to fly pole to pole and in heading from one pole to the other in Antarctica, they got into Whiteout and her and her co-pilot hit the ice cap at about 100 knots and they were lucky to live. Yes, all credit to her, she actually went back and and re-completed that flight having flown pole to pole by helicopter. But in my case, I thought a twin otter would be safer and then I realised pole to pole was one thing, but maybe I could fly around the world vertically landing at each pole. Now, that's never never been done before and may never be repeated because the North Pole ice is melting. So I bought a twin otter which had both wheels and skis and took off from Sydney headed south it was in November 1988 spent five weeks with the most incredible adventuring in Antarctica then to the South Pole twice and then from the South Pole right up through the Americas to the North Pole landing on the North Pole and then down through the Soviet Union uh, Glasnost and Perestroika was just happening in 1989 and <laughs> I was the first private plane to ever get permission to fly in there and then into Beijing just when the Tenement Square 
so-called massacre was taking place and then to Hong Kong and then back to Sydney. So it was a vertical flight around the world landing at each pole and that's going to be a hard one to repeat if the the sea ice melts at the North Pole. Yeah, you'll need a float plane more than anything for that one. Yeah, well, you'd need a float plane with skis because you'll (laughs) still be ice at the South Pole. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, Yeah, no, we were just chatting recently with Dan Colburn from uh, Sky Traders about flying the A319s down to the Blue Ice Runway down there. That was that was for our Antarctica episode. Right. Uh, well, I, of course, was fortunate enough to pioneer that flight. Not many people know, but the flight from Hobart to the ice at Casey was yep. uh, done by myself and Giles Kershaw and the Twin Otter in 1980, November 88. Definitely a first. Yep. It's, amaz- it's amazing how Antarctica has opened up since then. That's right. Because you were involved in um, in helping Qantas set up their sightseeing flights, weren't you? Yeah, that was my idea. I, I came up with the idea of Antarctic flights. In fact, Qantas, when I contacted them, they just thought I was crazy and they said, <laughs> look, no one will want to go on that. And I said, yes, they will. And I just chartered a 707. And when I announced it, I said, imagine going to the South Pole for the weekend. And when you get to work on Monday morning, someone says, well, what did you do on the weekend? You can say, I went to the South Pole. <laughs> and that was so popular that in the end, I think it was about 1976, I ended up having to change the 707 to a 747 and then into seven, two 747s. And I ended up running nine uh, jumbo jets to the to Antarctica, which was quite exciting and raised lots of money for charity. Yeah, they're operating the uh, 380 down there now too. Yes, well, that's good. Well, it's amazing how one idea can develop into something where they now run regularly and they make lots of money for Qantas, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> Flight experience 556, you're cleared for takeoff. Imagine sitting in a pilot seat, flying past London Bridge or the Eiffel Tower, and landing at just about any airport. It's not just a flying experience, it's flight experience. From the roar of the engines to amazing visuals, flight experience puts you in control of a 737 flight simulator. It's so real, your senses actually believe you're flying. For more information, go online to flightexperience.com.au or call 1-800-737-800. Flight experience, the ultimate flying experience. Hi, I'm really excited to announce the first ever Matt Hall Racing YouTube video competition. Every month between now and the end of the season, my team is going to award a Matt Hall Racing gift pack for the video they think is the best featuring me. At the end of the year, one of these winners plus one randomly drawn entrant will win a flight with me. All you have to do to enter is make a video between one and three minutes long, then send us a link at team at matthallracing.com to let us know that you posted it on YouTube. Good luck. Looking for a different way to promote your business? Our podcasts are a great way to reach listeners across the Asia-Pacific region and a growing audience around the world. We can produce your ad in-house in a variety of styles or use your own pre-produced commercial. With an expanding online aviation community of professionals and enthusiasts, our podcasts can get your name out there. For more information on our advertising packages, go to www.plainecrazydownunder.com and click on the Advertising With Us link. It's what's down under that counts. Pilot Stew here from the Pilot's Journey podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects.
And Dick, uh, that's helicopters and uh, fixed wing, of course, but uh, you've also been quite heavily involved in the ballooning scene. Well, yes, but my ballooning experience is, is relatively limited. I got my balloon licence and then I did the first flight across Australia and then I did the first and only flight from New Zealand to Australia. And that was interesting because until then, I think there'd been about seven attempts to fly across Australia and everyone tended to be very confident. I'd always do my homework. I'm a good risk manager and I ask advice. And so I went off to the United States because Cameron Balloons were organising a balloon race across the, the Atlantic. Yep. So I went to all their briefings and I learnt quite definitely that I needed to get something that was proven, a Rosie Air Balloon, which is combination helium and hot air. And then I was actually initially going to take a co-pilot of an American who flew in that race, but uh, I, I flew with John Wellington, who's a very experienced Australian balloonist, but until we flew across Australia, I think he told me the longest he'd ever been in a balloon was two or three hours. And <laughs> because of course with a balloon you want to get down before the winds come up yep. and I think the highest you'd ever been was probably 10,000 feet or so so it was an experience for both of us John, I needed someone with John's experience if we ended up with uh, high winds at landing because that can be very dangerous as oh, it yeah. was we were very fortunate but we were a great combination because I sort of built up the electronics in the balloon gondola and managed to sort of get the best advice and then the two of us just worked in a complementary way so we flew across Australia we managed to do that first flight and then we were then going to fly or I was going to fly initially from Australia to New Zealand and I asked John if he'd come with me and he said yes and then John Singleton said oh why don't you fly the other way and I said John you can't I said balloons have to go with the wind and he said oh look I'll bet you a hundred grand you can't fly from New Zealand <laughs> to Australia well that was worth it so I contacted the Met Bureau and we worked out that if we flew very low I mean normally yes. balloons across oceans go high but we thought if we flew a couple of thousand feet and we we're in a high pressure system and as long as it's sat across the Tasman for long enough, it didn't move. We yep. all know that it's anti-clockwise around a high-pressure system, and so we'd be swung around, and that's indeed what happened, and luckily, we just got to the coast of Australia before we were starting to be blowing, blowing south and towards Antarctica. <laughs> Very lucky there, though. Yep. I, I'm, I'm just doing my balloon license at the moment, and have been crew with the commercial operations here in Melbourne. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun when you get down low and get that feeling of speed. <laughs> Absolutely, and look, we were doing 160 kilometres an hour. I mean, the balloon Whoosh. just amazing up in the jet stream, and balloons are wonderful, but I'm not as keen as on fixed wing because in fixed wing and helicopters you're in control. In a balloon, yeah. you're really not, <laughs> and that means that it goes where the wind blows. It does require a lot more skill to fly a balloon properly, and having said you're in control, there are people like uh, um, Phil Kavanagh who is in control. I mean, these really good yep. balloon pilots can just do anything with a balloon. They're amazing. Oh, yeah. I've, I've worked with Phil and um, with Sean and yep. uh, also with the guys down here from Balloon Sunrise, picture this, and Kiffy from Global Ballooning who just right. recently flew a balloon over Lake Eyre. And, uh, yeah, it's it's amazing to They're see them flying in Melbourne. Oh, yeah, it's very competition yep. targeting. Well, I'm a more technologist balloon pilot where we had, in fact, the flight across the Tasman, we borrowed Steve Fawcett's autopilot. Okay. And so we had an autopilot which kept us at altitude, and uh, that was just a wonderful flight. And oh, yeah. uh, to me, l low level, uh, just really exciting. It's interesting you mentioned Steve Fawcett there. I was going to ask you, Dick, uh, had you met him uh, before he uh, unfortunately uh, he, passed? Steve was a good friend of mine, and I assisted him in his flights in Australia, and uh, I recently went and stayed with his widow, Peggy, in yep. the United States. Uh, I think that Steve had a heart attack. I mean, people, I think the official... 
Interesting. Accident report said that in the uh, decathlon that yep. he got into sort of a downdraft or something. Well, decathlon's enormously strong and Steve's a very good pilot. I think that he probably had a heart attack and it's as simple as that. And no better way to have a heart attack than when you're flying just by yourself so you don't hurt anyone else, but you go the best way. Yeah, there's yeah. A, a lot of rather uh, really out there theories when he disappeared and of course none of them had any credibility at all. It would have had to have been no, something far more simple, I think. No, they're absolute rubbish and uh, I knew Steve very well and he was just the most extraordinary adventurer of all times and the most extraordinary risk manager. If you want to be a solo adventurer and you want to live, yeah. you have to risk manage. You have to ask every bit of advice. And it's interesting, I find in Australia, and we'll talk about this on another podcast, I'm sure, how this incredible resistance to asking any advice at all. And I just find that fascinating because if you ask advice, you can then choose which is the correct advice and make the best decision. Yeah, no, definitely. That's, that's a very good point. Uh, there's a lot of people who are like, if I ask advice, it looks like I don't know what I'm doing. Yep, that's right. Uh, you can get caught in that trap. The, uh, uh-huh. Well, I've never been caught and I've never had any problems in asking advice. Yep, that's good. Dick, uh, tell us about the Cessna Caravan uh, SHW. It sounds like you've done some uh, really interesting trips in that one over the times as well. Yes, it's a wonderful machine. Now, I flew, after flying the Jet Ranger around the world and then the Twin Otter, I then purchased a Sikorsky S76. It's actually been previously owned by the King of Jordan. Yeah, serial number 12, very light. It's a magnificent twin-engine machine. can hold, I think it's about 14 people or something. Yep. But we had it set up with a table, which was an extra fuel tank. And I promised my wife, she stayed at home because our kids were young when I flew solo around the world. And I said, oh, look, one day I'll take you around the world in a helicopter. So the Sikorsky was the ideal machine. And we left here at Terry Hills from the front lawn and headed off the other way around the world, this time Australia to England and then to America and then by then you could go through Russia, down through Russia and into Japan and the Philippines and back to Australia. So it took about 12 months to do that, the most wonderful trip around the world. And uh, having done that and I'd called that helicopter, the call sign was Victor Hotel Sierra Hotel Whiskey, which stands for my hero, Sir Hubert Wilkins. Okay. And when we were in Nepal with the Sikorsky, Sikorsky's frightfully expensive. It needs three hours of maintenance for every one hour flying. Oh, Lord. <laughs> this is routine maintenance. So I do 100 hours, and that. 300 man hours. So I had a mechanic with me all the time, and he flew with us. And so every night when we'd finished flying, he'd have to sit there for three or four hours checking <laughs> everything. But wow. luckily, it was perfectly safe. And we lived well but in Nepal we saw this caravan park there and I said to Pip my wife gee look a caravan would be a lot simpler and cheaper than the Sikorsky and it would do just about the same things so when I came back I sold the Sikorsky it's now with the St John's Ambulance in New Zealand and I bought a brand new caravan which I've now done about 1500 hours in over the last 15 years including twice around the world and then once to uh, Greenland and back and the first trip around the world was sort of in the I mean I did go across the northern Pacific but then down into South America right to Antarctica Falkland Islands and then through southern Africa, Namibia and uh, all of those places, just wonderful and then back home via Cocos Island and then I did another flight around the world going to the northern area which was I headed off and went across Timbuktu and the Sahara and into Kenya and all touring around northern Africa and then home via the Maldives so that was a wonderful flight and the caravan is just a great adventure machine one engine but it's the safest engine you can have in the world, the PT6 it's not pressurised but we have oxygen to go to 25,000 feet, it's got 
got a big cargo compartment. I have extra tanks that fit on the seat racks. They only take an hour to put in. They're all certified. Switches in the, on the uh, panel. And that gives me 2,450 nautical mile range, which allows, <laughs> wow. me to, it allows me to do the longest leg you need, which is Hilo to uh, Monterey in America. Yep. Yeah, that is the, that, that getting between the continent, continental United States and Hawaii. That's always the first kicker, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, that's, but of course, you can come down now through Alaska and Russia and do short distances. The people who bring the Cessna Mustangs in only have yep. about an 800 nautical mile range and they come that way. And so okay. you can now get around the world. Now that Russia's opened up, you can get around the world by going around the northern Pacific. Okay, if you're willing to take that big detour. That's right, and pay all the money to land in Russia. It's now expensive. It's not cheap, is it? <laughs> <laughs> We've been speaking recently to a couple of local guys from down here in Victoria, Ken and Tim, who've just recently flown a Gippsland Aeronautics GA8 turbo airvan around the world. Dick, have you had much experience with the airvan? And what do you think of that as an aircraft? Yes, I think it's an incredible plane. I followed them every day on the net. I mean, it's just wonderful what yep. you can do now. And with these spider tracks and all these other units, yes. it's just, to me, incredible. See, it's one of the pities to me. See, the last two flights I've done in the caravan have been with GPS and Iridium phones and Inmarsat, and it's sort of made a bit boring because you <laughs> always know where you are, you know how much fuel you've got. You've got a moving map in front of you. I go back to the little jet ranger. I mean, I never knew where I was, and that's why I was frightened half the time. And when I landed on the ship, I made up a non-directional beacon. I've still got it. In fact, a friend made it up out of Dick Smith Electronics components, and I put another friend on board the ship and we threw the a wire over the crane and then I I think that was on about 660 kilohertz and I used that with the um, ADF automatic direction yep. finder in the helicopter to find the ship and distance wise you never really knew whether you had a tailwind or, or a headwind and so I was always pretty frightened that I was going to get there especially going across oceans now of course with GPS with the last two caravan flights where you've got moving map and it just makes yeah. it so easy and obviously a lot safer oh indeed indeed and but that's that's very much like uh, Amelia Earhart and Noonan they were using the ADF and so on in their Electra when they were flying yep. across the Pacific so uh, it take, right. takes and a lot of, course, of guts to do that <laughs> of course and also Alm who lost his life flying from America to Hawaii couldn't yep. find Hawaii and uh, that's how happened to lots of them because navigation is always a problem. Bert Hinkler lost his life. He hit a mountaintop in Italy. Uh, and yep. Smithy, of course, we don't really know what happened, but he crashed certainly on the Burmese coast. And so uh, it's one of the things I've sort of stopped risky adventuring because if you keep doing it, the media says, what's next, Dick? And, and I said, well, nothing's next because if I keep doing it, I'll, I'll use up my nine lives and I won't come back and I want to come back. No, there is that. Um, there is that. If you keep pushing the, pushing the boundaries, eventually one of them will come back and push you. Absolutely, you're quite correct. Dick, you mentioned just before about people ferrying out Mustangs. My understanding is you have a Cessna Mustang. No, I purchased one. Ah. And uh, I purchased it and then I decided to have too many aeroplanes because I have a <laughs> CJ3 as well. And so I thought I took a test drive in the Mustang, but it was nothing like the CJ3. Right. And then I managed to sell my position back and made, I think it was about half a million dollars US for doing nothing. Cool. So that was that spoiled me, didn't it? <laughs> that and the Twin Otter are the only two times I've ever made money out of planes. I flew the Twin Otter around the world and must have cost about $150,000 and then sold the Twin Otter, I think, for $200,000 more than I purchased it for. Oh, wow. So, so that was, they were two good money makers, the Twin Otter and the Mustang. Everything else has cost me money. Well, of course, the Twin Otter, they're just starting to release the 400 now. They're re, they're re, Viking are making it from scratch again. 
Absolutely, and I just sent off to the company. I had a spare copy of my book, my twin otter book, flying around the world, and I said, look, you better have this for your company archives. It's such a wonderful aeroplane. And they wrote back and said, thanks very much, really fantastic. And you never know, maybe they'll make a twin otter with floats and skis, and someone will try and repeat my vertical flight. <laughs> That'd be the one. Yep. Dick, uh, just before we sort of round it off here, I just wanted to uh, touch on a couple of uh, more philosophical standpoints to do with life, maybe not so much as flying. I note from your bio that uh, you were quite heavily involved in the scouting movement at a young age, uh, as are my children now, and it's a wonderful organisation to be involved in. And one of the other comments that surprised me at the start of this interview was that you said you were hopeless at school. But uh, despite uh, your uh, thoughts that way, you've uh, gone through life and uh, become one of Australia's most successful businessmen. And uh, we've heard uh, on this discussion on the podcast today about uh, some of your really fascinating adventures that have only come from success. So I guess what I'm getting at here is um, given that we have a lot of younger listeners and a lot of younger aspiring pilots and student pilots that listen to the program, what would be your advice to uh, those younger people coming through the system now that are looking at a career in aviation uh, or you know any other career in general, I guess? Yes, yeah, certainly. Well, first of all, my um, the only thing I was good at when I was young was cubs and scouts and seniors and then rovers. And I went right through from, uh, from the start at eight years of age ended up at 23 with my Baden-Powell Award, which is the highest award, and, and that's really the only qualification I have today. I was I, I just had great difficulty in learning and I remember even when I had to learn the phonetic alphabet I used to have it written on my hand you know alpha bravo delta whatever it is and uh, for some reason I've had great difficulty in learning things but I've always been very good practically but my my message to people is look if you can get a qualification do so because whenever I interviewed someone if I had two equal people the one with a qualification at least I thought gee they've got a bit they put a bit of hard work in to get that so that's the person I'll put on I like people who work hard so do everything you can to get a qualification, whether that's just a school certificate or a high school certificate or a university degree, but don't rule yourself out if you don't. Some people are just no good at doing academic type work, but like me can still do really well in Australia and in business and so forth. And so that would be my suggestion. It's interesting, when I owned Dixman Electronics, I had this young bloke, I won't mention his name because I'd embarrass him because he's now a senior Qantas pilot, and he <laughs> started work with me at 15, he didn't even have his intermediate certificate, and he was one of the brightest young boys I had working for me, and I made the terrible error of taking him out when I was learning to fly. And he fell in love with flying, ended up, still still doesn't have his intermediate certificate today, started flying King Airs to Lord Howe Island, then got into Qantas, and now is a senior Qantas pilot. And it just shows you that even though he didn't have that academic ability, he's a wonderful natural pilot and could learn how to fly. Now, I do know today that most of the airlines won't accept someone unless they've got high school certificate and that. But look, if you went off and you helped in a hangar up in Alice Springs or Darwin and gradually started your flying. And if you're competent, as long as you can pass the CASA exams, which are not impossible, you can become a pilot of a 747 because people are looking for competency and discipline, self-discipline, someone who's willing to ask advice, who's willing to learn as much as they can that's the type of person who'll get a job in aviation. I think a key part of, you've mentioned it a couple of times now during the show, is um, is being willing to ask advice from people. And, and, and most important thing about asking advice is you get a lot of wrong advice, and that's where you <laughs> use common sense. Now, we're going to talk in another podcast about aviation reform and airspace, and it's quite amazing that one of the most common criticisms I get is, oh, well, Dick Smith, you never listen to others. In fact, nothing could be more wrong. Virtually all of my success has come from listening to others and surrounding myself with capable people. What these people miss out on, they, they, what they think is 
when he's not taking any notice of me. Well, that's very possibly right because I've listened to, say, 20 or 30 people and said, well, these people are giving this advice are pretty well fixed in their ways. When I go around the world asking people, it becomes obvious that there are better ways of doing things. And that means you then have to stand up and say, we're not going to do it that way anymore. We're going to move to a new system. And what I found with my reforms that initially they're greatly resisted. Initially in Australia, if you wanted to fly more than 50 miles or go above 5,000 feet, you had to put in a full flight plan called a full position flight plan. It was similar to an instrument flight rule flight plan. So if you wanted to fly privately from Sydney to Cooma, every 30 minutes you'd have to call up and say where you were. And if you saw something interesting to your left, you'd have to report where you were going to go was the most nightmarish system. Now, I abolished that, and there are still people today who say that terrible Dick Smith abolished the full (laughs) position reporting. But can you imagine if you went off in your Land Rover on a weekend and every 30 minutes you had to report to the government (laughs) where you were, what you were doing? I mean, you would just say, hold on, that's our basic freedom. And it's amazing how I've introduced two quite separate systems. One, I reinforced the instrument flight rule system where you fly more in controlled airspace, and that is very disciplined. That's how I fly my citation single pilot. Then you can fly very freely, VFR, and as long as you monitor and give calls when you're near airports, most of the rest of the time you can fly along enjoying and looking at the scenery and keeping a good eye, a good lookout. That's what you should be doing. To be reporting to the government where you are every 30 minutes is just, it's our forefathers fought for some certain freedoms and that's one of them. Yeah, It's interesting, um, uh, Dick, I I learned to fly predominantly in the United States and um, when I came back here in the early 90s and uh, started flying under even then the, uh, the flight rules as they were in Australia then, I found them very complex by comparison the way they do things in the States. That's exactly right. And I'll tell you on another podcast how it was that flight around the world which just opened my eyes up to how bad we were. And that started me on my sort of crusade to update our rules. I've done about 20 or 30% of what needs to be done. I have this delusion. I'm 66 years of age. I have this delusion when I'm 70, I'm going to be called back to complete the reforms (laughs) so we can have aviation booming in this country, employing thousands more people, being the world leader in flight training and being the world leader in recreational aviation, having people coming from all around the world to fly here and simply bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars of overseas export dollars and having an industry that's the strongest in the world. That's what I can do, but the problem is you have to get rid of these dumb people who fight and fight and fight to keep the system and the rules that they learnt to fly in 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, fight the inertia. (laughs) You're right. Well, unfortunately, Dick, time has got the better of us. Uh, Dick Smith, it's been an absolute privilege to be able to speak to you on the program this morning. We know you're a very busy man, and uh, as I say, there are so many other things that we'd like to talk to you about. We're really looking forward to catching up with you again another time to discuss such things as airspace reform and uh, many of the other things that uh, you've been involved in to do with uh, aviation reform in this country. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, But for now, Dick, we really appreciate you uh, spending some time with us here this morning. It's great, Grant, and so great to be talking to you, and I really look forward to doing those other interviews. Bye-bye.
And there we go, Grant. I tell you what, wasn't that just absolute gold? Oh, that was awesome. I'm really, really impressed with that uh, interview. And it was great, just a casual, relaxed chat with Dick Smith. Uh, really happy to have had that, and I'm looking forward to the next couple. Yeah, I tell you what, we, you know, we've had some big names on this podcast, and uh, it's not all. It's not only because they're big names that we have them on, Grant. It's the reason they're big names is because they've got really interesting stories to tell. And as I said at the at the top of the show, you know, while some people perhaps are not fans of Dick Smith, uh, you know, because he he doesn't mind being outspoken, and you heard that towards the end of that interview. I find that one of his uh, more endearing qualities. It, it doesn't always hurt to speak out against the establishment. You know, with the full knowledge that uh, it's not always going to make you a lot of friends, but he goes out and does it anyway, and it's always for the greater good. Yeah, no, if you're going to try and make changes and, make, and improve the world, you're going to get people who don't like you. Simple as that. As I said towards the end of that interview, Grant, the way the uh, the flight rules and procedures were in this country back in the late 80s, early 90s, when I came back here after having flown in the United States, it was so convoluted, it was so overly complex, given the, the low amount of traffic that was flying in Australian skies at that time, compared to the way they do it in, uh, in Europe and in, in the United States, things had to change here, and it was Dick Smith that brought about that change. Yeah, no, he's, he's definitely been instrumental in getting us to where we are now, and hopefully he'll be instrumental in getting us to where we should be. And uh, As we heard with our chat with Deborah Laurie, there's a lot of change required here in Australia from anyone who's flown overseas and seen how it could be can come back and give that information. Sure, there it's not perfect overseas, but uh, there's a lot of stuff they do that's good. Yeah, and it's interesting, Grant, too, that he mentioned Dick Smith Electronics a lot. We're actually uh, talking to you, or I know I am, a lot of the uh, plane crazy down under equipment by sheer coincidence comes from Dick Smith Electronics. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, mate. And I'm going to have to take him up on that offer to uh, go for a ride in his helicopter. I think, uh, what, what, what's your schedule looking like tomorrow, mate? Oh, mate, I think we may have to jump, jump up there, but uh, definitely uh, interested the uh, that A109 Power, uh, the Augusta helicopter, there used by the Royal Australian Navy as a uh, as an advanced trainer and uh, executive helicopter within the Navy. They're they're pretty sexy beasts, but uh, you know even the Jet Ranger, I've loved flying in those. Yeah. So uh, Grant, the the really cool thing about uh, speaking to Dick Smith there, and I, I sort of sensed before we he came onto the show that um, you know we're not a big show, and um, he wasn't perhaps completely sure what we were about here. But um, the really cool thing is, as time went on through that interview, that uh, he's quite happy to come back and speak to us again about uh, some other issues that are of importance to him and therefore of importance to us. Uh, so we, we're going to uh, certainly uh, pursue that and um, hopefully we can have Dick back on the show in the next uh, the next month or so. Yeah, no, that'll be great. As soon as we can, we'll get him back on and uh, continue the chat. Well, it just about wraps it up for this week. Thanks very much for listening, folks. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back in another couple of weeks with another episode. Don't forget, you can also catch us on the Airplane Geek Show with our Australia Desk Report and now also on Flight Time Radio. That's at flighttimeradio.com with Milford and Charlie, where we're now presenting our Flying Down Under segment every couple of weeks or so. So things are getting pretty busy for Grant and I here, but we're really enjoying presenting these shows for you. So remember, when you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.plainecrazydownunder.com, or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website, or email us at plainecrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast.
kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Shows at the Aviation Podcast Network. Thevoicesinyourhead.com.